0: getting So, hello, welcome everybody. Really, really excited to welcome you to what is episode number six of the Waking Up to Autism podcast. Um, now, for some of you, this will be the sixth episode that you've listened to. For some of you, you may be absolutely brand new. So, just as a little introduction, my name is Claire Cross and I am the founder of Waking Up to Autism. And we launched the Waking Up to Autism podcast very recently um, as a platform to invite some incredible neurodivergent. Um, adults as guests to come and share their story. Um, and I'm absolutely um, thrilled to be able to welcome Anna Hudson Young, who is um, an autistic adult female who is working at the moment within further education, a further education teacher for hairdressing, makeup, and beauty therapy, um, and a mother of two. So, welcome, Anna, to the Working Actual Autism podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited
0: to be here. Oh, I'm so thrilled that you are giving us your time um, what I would really love to start off with Anna is and how I have with other guests is I just really want to hear your personal journey with regards to actually being diagnosed as autistic
1: so I actually took it upon myself when I was about 27 to go down the route of diagnosis um, and if I can just start at the beginning it, it wasn't mm. a, um I was unaware of autism because I have four first cousins and three of them have been diagnosed with autism. Um, So I was very much aware of what autism was, Um, but I think growing up because my sort of traits were different from that of my cousins, um, my family didn't really pinpoint that autism was something that I had. They Mm -hmm. sort of, It down to behavioral issues, um, sort of anxiety, everything like that. Um, And it wasn't picked up on at all, even though the uh, traits were screaming in your face. Um, (laughs) From my own (laughs) research and reflection, um, the the traits were blindingly obvious, blindingly obvious. And um, I sort of grew up knowing that I was really different. Uh, My behavior was different, my anxiety levels were through the roof. And, you know, it was through um, doing sort of an autism awareness CPD day at work um, that it all kind of came to a head. And that was a cherry on top of the the large cake of of traits that I had sort of pinpointed throughout my whole life. Um, And I kind of approached my family who were a bit sceptical. They didn't really think that that was the case, but they sort of backed me anyway, as you do. Um, and and I just decided to pursue it myself, and I went down the road myself um, and and got diagnosed very, very quickly, actually. Um, but in terms of sort of what my traits were as, as a young child, I mean you know, as, as explained, I had, I had uh, cousins with autism, um, but I, you know, I found it really, really hard to socialize. I um, would sort of stand in the middle of the playground where um, all of the other children were playing around. And I remember the noises were really, really hard for me to deal with. Um, And also the, the hustle and bustle and just kids running around. And it's almost as if I was like, had a blurry vision I it just was all too much the bright lights the noise the the sort of physical aspects of actually being in the playground um, and also not just in the playground but in in sort of general environments where there was lots of people um I I never slept as a baby at all um I I you know I wasn't sort of a crier but I would never sleep and that has been a running theme throughout my childhood as well um, and my parents got very frustrated at times uh, mm-hmm. they used Me to um, sort of um, sleep specialists and and sort of psychologists. Um, I was uh, referred to CAMs more than I can count, um, but autism was never. Ever suggested. Um, I mean, you know, couldn't make friends. Um, I would have meltdowns at at home. Um, I would appear sort of very quiet and shy and reserved at school. Um, Didn't really say much. Um, Wasn't really an outgoing member of, of the school at all. Um, and then I went home, and all hell broke loose. I, you know, used to go into fits of rage and meltdowns, and I used to kick things, and I used to bite myself. And, you know, ever since I could remember, I w- I would self harm in that way, because I couldn't cope. But also, I never really knew why I couldn't cope. There was never really a concrete reason as to why I was behaving like this. I just didn't even understand myself at all. Um, and you know, I had very rigid routines and behaviors. Um, I had, you know, special interests so much so that I made my parents decorate my whole entire room, um, in elephant wallpaper, because for a period of time I was obsessed with elephants. Um, and you know, I mean, there was, there was so many things that, that were blindingly obvious that, wasn't picked up and I think that was because there wasn't much known about autism in that it's a sphere of traits there's no sort of measurable spectrum there you cannot measure whether somebody's high or low functioning or or you can't sort of pit one autistic person against another because you know one of them has traits the other doesn't it's a whole wide range of traits and and Because I wasn't necessarily like my cousins who were diagnosed, my parents thought, well, you know, she doesn't have anything. Um, and I think also, you know, I grew up in the 90s, I was born in 1992, um, there was very much a stigma on that kind of diagnosis. And I think my parents saw that I was coping at school or outwardly coping, although I was masking quite a lot um, and thought, OK, well, she's coping in that respect. So she actually doesn't need a diagnosis. You know, she she's doing all right. Um, where in actual fact, I really, really wasn't. And I was just good at hiding it a lot. Um, and so it, it took a long time for um, my family to come around to the idea that I possibly was autistic through my own admission. You know, so it was a long road. And I think some of my family are, are a bit skeptical even now, especially with um, uh, you know my daughter going through assessments at the moment as well. Um, and I think there there could you know always be that sort of stigma because you know what parent wants to admit that there's something going on with their child they just they, they want to see the best in their child and and you know they don't want to focus on on the difficulties at all so I think it has been very hard for my family to come to terms with the fact that I am autistic so that's the kind of road that led yeah. us to where we are
0: today. Absolutely and it's absolutely fascinating and I'm I'm sitting here and I'm sort of nodding away and I'm smiling and it actually makes me feel quite choked up and emotional actually because mm-hmm. Your story is such a familiar one. And I think that there are so many, especially autistic female adults who are going through very similar situations as yourself because you didn't present in that typical way that society had painted that an autistic person presents, which is usually the the boys and, and certain traits that they display. Because they couldn't pattern match you, because they couldn't kind of like, oh yes, you match that, so you obviously are autistic as well. And like you say, it's it's the sphere of um, being autistic that's so important. And I think so many people in society think of it as a linear line, and you you somehow must fall at some point um, on, on it. And it's it's interesting as well, you referring to the kind of the high functioning and low functioning scale, yes. because. Um, Obviously, I'm neurotypical, hence why I love bringing you guys in and and Mm. to learn from you. But definitely from like my daughter's point of view, who presents exactly like you're describing. Mm. She is the model pupil. She's academically, she finds it challenging because she has learning difficulties as well. But on a day to day basis in a classroom, she is quiet. She is polite. She's, you know, would go under the radar Mm. Um, and so would appear to the outside world that she's high functioning she's functioning well when actually she's not underneath you know and I think it's quite dangerous to label high functioning when actually there's a lot more going on and like you say so many parents I know are going to be listening to this going my child navigates the school day and I get the teacher saying oh they're fine but they're not when they get home it's it's when you know that's when it all kind of unravels when you're in your safe space and you're you're not having to obviously put that mask up so much. Um, so how was your just very quickly, because you said that you were referred to cams quite a few times. How's your experience been with cams? because I know from I've never had to go down that road with, with my two, but I know lots of parents have and they haven't had the most positive of experiences. How was your experience with kind of navigating yeah. them?
1: You know, as, as other people have stated, it was awful. Um, yeah. I think I can, I think the first time I went, I was genuinely about six. So it was, it was quite a long time ago, but I, I just remember sort of them talking in front of me about all of my issues. And I was in the room and I just found it so awkward. Um, and, you know, they would sit me down and just play with this doll's house or something and were watching how I played and I didn't know I was there. And, 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 I think they were just talking about coping methods to to my parents and and nothing, nothing else really came of it. I don't really remember that sort of time period. Um, but the second time I was referred, I actually developed an eating disorder
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and the, the person who was sort of assessing me and and sort of talking to me about it was just so insensitive. And, and just said well you just need to eat you know and 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 to say that to someone who's going through a severe eating disorder mm-hmm. is absolutely ridiculous and so out of touch and it was so triggering for me mm-hmm. and that I refused to go back and I mean I'm sure that there was other times that I did go to cams but I don't really remember specifically because mm-hmm. I think it was such a, a weird situation that I sort of blanked it out afterwards mm-hmm. Um. I think you know, I think that must be an autistic trait of mine is that I sort of um, forget things that are kind of quite traumatic towards um, my situation. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, the the, the times I do remember it wasn't a good experience at all um, and I didn't want to go back there and, and it didn't help, none of it helped because you know as we as we know I I struggled massively continuously and that never stopped throughout my childhood so yeah yeah.
0: exactly and like you say I mean this whole kind of trying to teach coping mechanism is kind of like trying to stick a a sticking plaster on a broken leg isn't it you're not actually kind of getting to the root cause of what's going on and mm-hmm. and yeah i've had many people sort of say that actually going to cams made their mental health worse so which is not the best um feedback for a mental health service so it's just interesting to hear that that's obviously been something that's been an ongoing issue if obviously you, you were you were accessing them when you were a small child yeah. um so obviously you say that you went you obviously you self-referred and you were diagnosed quite quickly yes. um how did you find that when when actually it was quite a quick um process that they're like yes you're autistic mm-hmm. and how did you feel about actually receiving that diagnosis
1: well I actually referred to my GP and um, referred myself rather to to the GP and um, who put me on the the waiting list for the NHS service and um, mm-hmm. and I given the time frame of potentially two and a half years or longer. And so I took it upon myself to um, gather the money, even though, you know, it was a lot. Um, and, you know, I had sort of family members help out, thankfully, um, and I'm forever grateful for that. Um, and I actually went private. And uh, we had uh, two assessments. The first one, um, you know, I took my dad with me, um, who explained, um, about my childhood, Um, you know, they go from sort of uh, the mother's pregnancy to birth and babyhood and so on. So it was, it was a really sort of full scale assessment. Um, And in the second one, um, I I mean, the end of the first one, he sort of indicated, you, you know, this is the evidence is there it's it's very overwhelming and then the sort of second one was um you know it confirmed it for us and and me and I think the weight that I felt lifted off me was incredible And, and I felt like crying because suddenly the whole 27 years of my life made sense and I wasn't to blame necessarily for the way that I behaved in childhood, because I was made to feel so guilty, so much to blame for for how I acted and how I behaved and how I felt, um, that I I really felt that there was something intrinsically wrong with me. Um, but to get that diagnosis meant that there was a certain reason. For why I couldn't cope with certain situations. There was a reason why I behaved that way, because I was trying to self-regulate. And there were so many things that I sort of found out from that diagnosis. And I and I researched further that, oh, you know, boating myself wasn't weird, it wasn't crazy, I was there wasn't something wrong with me. It was me trying to calm myself. It was me trying to sort of center my body because my my mind couldn't cope with these thoughts and these feelings, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think you know there's so many positives that came out of my my experience with my diagnosis and I have no regrets whatsoever I think it's sort of the best investment that I've ever made Um, and I also feel very very sad that um you know those who aren't as lucky as myself to to be able to gather the money together to to go private. Sh- you know do have to wait two and a half years plus. I think it's an absolute travesty, um, and you know I I fear for for those going through diagnosis at the moment. You know how long are, uh, are we making these these children wait for diagnosis, and and you know potentially adults as well who are going through the diagnosis um, journey. So
0: yeah um absolutely and I think that's it's really really key as well because I think a lot of parents come up against um feedback from professionals or teachers or whatever that kind of go what's the point of having a diagnosis what's the point of putting yourself through that what's it going to achieve there's no cure for for being autistic Mm
1: -hmm. um
0: and obviously I'm extremely pro-diagnosis because I have only seen it have a very positive outcome um Obviously, if there's an adult who thinks they're autistic, but they really don't have that need or that desire to find out officially, then obviously that's their complete and utter right. But obviously, as you know, I think, you know, my brother got diagnosed as an adult and my children have now got a diagnosis and they can do with that as as they wish. If they want to share it with others, that's their choice or, or whatever. But what would you say to parents listening who are being told by maybe teachers or professionals to why bother getting a diagnosis?
1: I think it opens up so many avenues of not only understanding, but also recognition of the need for support in in education. Um, You know, as a further education teacher, um, I see more often than not traits of autism, traits of ADHD um, within students who have not yet been diagnosed and they are entitled to nothing. Um, absolutely nothing, and and without that recognition of diagnosis, it doesn't open avenues for uh, learning support. Doesn't open avenues for the possibility of of getting an EHCP for your child, um, and and I, I think a lot of parents still have a stigma about sort of autism diagnoses as well, um, and and the sort of. Potential prejudice that that comes through um, from that, but actually we live in a new world now. That you know the prejudice for for uh, disabled students and and children, uh, you know it, it's going and it's it's people are becoming more accepting of it. Um, and so it is really important to pursue anything that you think your child needs um you know and it it, as we know um as parents of of neurodiverse children as well the fight is massive to Mm. to even sort of get diagnosed and, and get that support um you know and it's and it's becoming apparent that that teachers are evidently very very stretched with the amount of children they have in one class with the limited resources the the cuts to government funding um, and and this is all sort of encompassing and how difficult it is to to not let children with with um sort of undiagnosed autism slip under the radar it's Mm -hmm. so easy for them to go under and not get noticed Mm -hmm. so it's really important for parents to be able to advocate for their child when their child isn't able to Um, so
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely um what's really interesting what I find really fascinating what I'd love just to kind of maybe um kind of gain from yourself and your experience is obviously because you're an autistic um adult now obviously you've always been autistic you just <laughs> didn't know that you're autistic until you were an adult what difference do you feel it would have made to you if you'd had that diagnosis when you were a child
1: oh massive amounts um I mean I I struggled so much um socially in school I mean I was I was sort of average academically Mm. um, but it it was a real challenge for me to integrate into sort of a school setting and and be able to sort of you know interject my thoughts in the classroom or even speak to a teacher about my worries Um, and it was only because I was sort of naturally average I, I didn't necessarily need that much support but in terms of like memory even you know memorizing my timetable making sure I was um getting to class on time I mean I was terrible with lateness I I lived around the corner from my school and I and I would always be late sort of thing um and and that was sort of not recognized at all um and you know when I was doing exams I would see rivers in between all of the um of the words and and it it was quite overwhelming to sort of be in you know a big room full of kids when they're really noisy and and um you know not being able to see the board properly it's just all of these different things that that i you know was never recognized by by a teacher my my struggles because i was doing okay academically none of the other stuff was even recognized or considered Mm -hmm. Um, Think that would have helped me a lot, and um, if that had been recognised, so I could get support in that way, whereas mm-hmm. I never got anything. So,
0: yeah, it, and it. And I think as well. I think what we really need to do is to try and encourage schools and teachers and educators to really sort of look at that bigger picture, because even though a child may be ticking a box with regards to their academic ability, it goes so much beyond that. Mm -hmm. and we're really wanting our schools to be that nurturing environment where not only children have a certain level of academic ability Mm -hmm. but they're able to actually thrive and reach their full potential as as human beings and be able to Mm -hmm. and I suppose as well we'll never know because you know Mm -hmm. we can't um, rewind time but had those supports been in place it kind of I know my brother often thinks about had it been known that he was autistic and perhaps supports and and things were put in place, Mm. where he would be now. That doesn't mean that he's not happy with where he is now and that he doesn't feel like he's achieved and that he's a successful person, but it kind of, I suppose there's that thought process of I wonder wonder where and what I would have achieved or where I would be now or the person or the flip side of it as well is perhaps I wouldn't have gone through certain challenges You know, you've made reference to the fact that, you know, you you had an eating disorder, which there is a connection with um, that. If you're a female um, autistic person, you're more likely to have an eating disorder, Um, you know, and obviously the self-harm with the biting. You might think maybe they never would have. Maybe they would have always happened.
1: Yeah.
0: Or maybe they could have been avoided in in, in some way as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: Kind of going on with that. What I really want what I'm very interested in as well. Is because obviously I've got um, a boy and a girl, both of who are autistic and obviously Olivia is 12 she's entering that preteen stage, mm. um, which I think is really, really difficult for mm. any female, um, but I think there's a huge <laughs> extra layer with the fact that she's autistic, but being an autistic female do you feel that makes you more vulnerable.
1: Oh, absolutely. 100%. Um, I was always taken advantage of as as a kid and a teenager um, by the people I thought were my friends. Um, I think I found sort of social situations really hard to navigate always. And I was kind of told off a little bit by my parents for for not having friends And, and I think they got quite frustrated with me because I wouldn't make friends and they sort of drummed it into me that it was really important to make friends and so I took that in a way that I thought okay well I'll just do anything that they say to try and make friends with people and actually those friends in quotation marks took a lot of advantage of me and I ended up getting bullied relentlessly by the people I thought were my friends for years I mean we're talking sort of from the age of five to 15 you know and it was just relentless and and just trying to navigate and trying to fit in um, and and just be like everybody else I mean I used to sort of study people that were popular in my school and and sort of make sure that I sort of copied their mannerisms and trying to see what they wore and things like that um so it was very very difficult and I think a lot of people knew that I was vulnerable and and sort of played on that and um yeah school was school was awful for me and and I think obviously with the hormones and everything like that running around um it's it's even worse um and you know teenage angst is is rife with with all people at some point in their life and You know, it just with autism, it's like, you know, if you feel sort of hot or cold, even in temperature, you feel it tenfold more than what a neurotypical person may feel it to be and you know even sort of like the physicality of growing body hair and wearing makeup for the first time it's it's all such a minefield and I think as an autistic female which is is slightly different typically from a male is that we want to be sociable we really want to fit in we want to have friends but we just don't know how to navigate that. that that sort of socialization isn't coming naturally to us always and, and it we have to work really hard to to sort of study other people to see how how they interact with each other and and copy that and mm-hmm. I think sometimes you know other people who aren't as understanding of that um, can often see it as Sort of like a negative thing of, oh, why, why is Anna copying me? Or why is Anna wearing the same thing I'm wearing? Or why is Anna speaking like I am? But we're just trying to appear normal because we don't know what normal is. We, we don't know how the world works like a neurotypical person does. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And, and it is absolutely fascinating because um, my daughter, and I feel as well, what's quite dangerous in a way is I know my daughter is a lot of autistic girls can be is the the classic people pleaser.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Really wanting to be included. And Mm. if they get that kind of positive response or encouragement, it's like Mm. they'll do anything. And that's what, what I think I find. Oh my goodness. You know, Mm. there's some, unfortunately, some not very nice people in the world oh, who yes. would spot that a mile away and mm-hmm. be like right we can literally get this person to do anything if we just give them the attention and make them feel wanted mm-hmm. um but it is so interesting with the masking like you say which is classically what is is what you're describing about sort of trying to morph into the people around mm-hmm. you that you feel kind yeah. of got to grips with life a bit better than you have you're like right you seem to know what's going on I'll just copy you it's, 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 I find it fascinating, although I can imagine it must be utterly exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever experience sort of like autistic burnout?
1: Oh, always. Absolutely. I think um, I mean, I was I was bullied so badly um, that I had to leave my secondary school at the end of year 10 and move to a new school. Um, and You know, I'd I'd always been sort of like the tag along who would do anything anybody says because I just wanted to be accepted and liked and I was taken advantage of and some horrible things were done to me horrible Um, and I just was that kind of shy person that was really reserved and sort of just kept herself to herself because, you know, I had these friends and I didn't know how to make friends with somebody else. You know, I, I thought, oh, well, these are my friends and that's it. And I sort of went on that persona of that sort of timid and shy, do anything you would say sort of thing just to be liked. And then I, I was bullied so much that I had to leave. Um, and then I went to this new school, which I didn't know anybody, I think mm-hmm. only one person, but I said to myself before I started I can't be the person I was before I can't be this timid and shy person I'm gonna to have to really try and so um I you know on, on my first day I went to to school with the one friend that I did know and I was studying her mannerisms studying everything and and I sort of had it in my head right I'm gonna be confident I'm gonna be confident and um in my first math class I remember and. Um, I don't know what came over me, it was strange, but it was like something I'd never done before. And it was like a drive that took over me. And I just walked up to this girl and I said, hi, my name's Anna, I'm new, I don't know anyone. Um, Are you in this class? And then she was really, really lovely to me and really kind. And we ended up being really amazing friends and, you know, that that sort of set off a new road for me in in this confidence. Um, and through that year, I consistently was that confident person. But then at the end of the year, when my GCSEs came round, and when there was that sort of time period between summer and college, I really took a nosedive, I, I couldn't keep up the sociable Anna anymore. I was tired, I was exhausted, I was burnt out. And although you know that's not to say that wasn't me that was sort of authentically me as well but the the constant talking to people and being this sort of happy outgoing person all the time and and sort of masking to a degree where actually I couldn't really keep up to that degree anymore um I really had burnout and then my first year of college I had something like 40 percent attendance um so it was that time period of, okay, I really, I need to stop doing this for a minute. And I I just sort of retreated from the world and, and had quite a few months where it was, you know, my attendance to college was really low. Um, I would just sleep all day long. I would come, I would come home from college and sleep from like four to 7 p.m., And then I would then go to bed at like 10pm. And then that would be sort of like my week for a while. Um, And then it took me a long time to sort of build myself back up again. Um, And so I think, you know, I wasn't diagnosed, but looking back, I think that was my big burnout period um and you know since then I've kind of learned to cope with it a bit better but I have had sort of mini bouts of um of burnouts most definitely I think towards the end of the academic year and rolling into summer when I finish sort of teaching I think that's when I get a little bit of burnout and a little bit sluggish and just want to sort of retreat into myself a bit more um so
0: yeah I mean absolutely I think it's just it's, it's having I think like you say it's having that socialization to that level and kind of like, like this is me and I've just got to keep going because it's working mm. I walked into that math class and she liked me and it's this is where yeah. I need to be and kind of that high vibe and it's like yeah that mask is gonna, is gonna slip isn't it and it's just that kind of and it's like it's like it's not a natural subconscious behavior. It's like you've got to be conscious and think yeah. about it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Is, it just kind of burns that that sort of mental energy. Yeah. And what will be really interesting to hear because I know that with a lot of the parents that I work with, a lot of them are now discovering that they too are autistic or they knew before mm. um because they're identifying it within themselves. And one right. of the questions that kind of gets asked quite a lot is how do people juggle the fact that they themselves are autistic and they are a parent because obviously they find that they get overwhelmed or they have burnout or they've got sensory challenges Hmm. and obviously they're wanting and, and are parenting their children and sometimes find it very very challenging is that something that you experience and if it is how do you kind of try to navigate that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I had my children when I was very young. Um, I had my first when a week after I turned 22. And then I had my second 21 months later. So I had two under two. And um, in the beginning of having two under two, I mean, when I had my my daughter, Um, in 2014 um, you know she was an only child for 21 months and that that was okay that was fine you know because I could sort of pour all of my attention into her Um, and you know I I was on maternity leave and everything like that and then when she was 13 months old I got pregnant with um, Asha Um, and having two under two was the biggest shock of my life I think I had just got into a really good routine with Talia Um, I was very precise with sort of um her routine you know what time she ate what time she had her bottle what time she went down for a nap and everything like that and you know we'd go to baby groups and so on and so forth and I I got it a really good handle on it by the time she was 13 months and then obviously Asha came along and it all went out the window <laughs> and I suddenly had these two young babies to look after um and you know it, it crying non-stop sometimes and you know a young toddler wanting your attention and quite often even the sound of the Mm. baby's crying would sort of send me a little bit doolally (laughs) and I had to sometimes sort of retreat into sort of the bathroom and close the door for five minutes and just breathe Mm. I was like okay I you can do this you can do this and and quite often um you know, when their dad would go to work, I just used to cry because I was so frustrated at the, the possibility of, of me being solely responsible for these two beautiful young babies and, and being so unsure of my mothering um, sort of skills at that point, because I'd suddenly gone from one to two. And, and you know, they were they were so young, and it was so difficult and and you know as they grew older it was it was better and i suddenly sort of got a handle on it and and learned to sort of cope with their own individual needs and sort of juggle it quite nicely um but definitely in the beginning it was it was a real real tough challenge and i actually got diagnosed with postnatal depression which actually i think i mean i'm not saying it wasn't postnatal depression but i think it was it was actually probably part of my autism as well the fact that I I got really sort of anxious when they would go and stay at a family members or something and I would rigidly write a list of what needed to be done and the exact times of when when they needed their feed and when they're you know having their snack and things like that to the point where people thought I was a little bit strange Mm -hmm. Um, and I would sort of get really really uppity when a family member would give them something different from for dinner or something like that or something that I hadn't planned for and I I never thought I would be an anxious parent but I am the most anxious parent you would ever meet Mm -hmm. and I try to minimize that around my children as much as possible Mm um and that is hard it's really really hard when you have so many worries um you know about certain things (laughs) relating to your children and and um, yeah it's really hard to sort of keep it from them and and keep sort of calm around them but you know I have found strategies um, you know when I come home from work I've had a long long day of sort of teaching students and my children have had a long day and they've been to after school club um, and actually when I cook dinner I let them go on their iPads in Mm -hmm. their rooms they go off Um, my daughter has a little cupboard she goes into and she loves to sort of wrap herself in duvets and go on her iPad for half an hour you know some parents don't agree with iPad time at all but actually that's my way of calming myself down and also they can calm themselves down um, whilst I cook dinner and then we sort of reconvene afterwards and and it's more chilled out and more mellow so there are little things that that you know may be sort of controversial in parenting that sometimes you just have to forgive yourself for and you just have to let it happen you know sometimes even You know, if you're if you're really sort of stressed out and you don't have time to cook, give them some chicken nuggets, order a pizza. Do you know what I mean? Anything that's going to make you um, more comfortable and, and make sure that you can regulate yourself, because if you're not regulated, if you're having a hard time, it's automatically going to project onto your children. They can sense how you're feeling always, even though they don't outwardly show it they can they can sense it and it is really important to be forgiving to yourself um you know when when you are struggling and and give yourself a break actually you know so
0: yeah and i'm loving that you're saying that because it you're kind of like you know you're preaching to the converted because i it's it's what i say all the time to other parents mm-hmm. is that there's this kind of like society's expectation is that we've all got to be picture perfect and mm-hmm eating the most nutritious meals and no one ever goes on technology and that's not reality Mm. and how we show up as parents is the first thing that we need to to sort out because how we show up is directly like you say going to impact on our children and they will pick up on it instantly Mm,
1: Um,
0: you know and I'm much more in the camp of chicken nuggets and chips but a well-balanced parent who's not on the floor Um, because it's completely broken down, but you've got like, you know, the most nutritious meal on the table, but you know, it's been at the at the cost of your mother's sanity or your father's sanity, you know. Um, you know, so it's great to hear that your coping strategy really is to just simplify it and to just be real, you know, just (laughs)
1: it's been a long road, Claire. It has, I think, you know, from being a really young parent with young young babies um and being so anxiety ridden and and being trying to be that really structured parent who does really lovely activities and and gives their children nutritious meals all the time to actually as they've gotten older and and you know i've I've gone through parenting for more years it's like actually i need to give myself a break now you know i i i can't keep this up all the time because I'm not pouring my energy into my children, I'm pouring my energy into this nutritious meal or this activity, but actually, I need to be focusing on my children and, and sort of the way that they are and their individual needs, rather than all of these material things or this Food and everything like that. that thats not what's important necessarily. Obviously, you know, I don't give my kids chicken nuggets every day. That's—that's that's not what what I do. But sometimes, when you're at that point where you you need to sort of take a step back, it's necessary, you know, for yeah. your sanity. <laughs>
0: yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And what I'm what really want to—that kind of leads on quite nicely because obviously you you reference there about the fact that you work, you're a mm. working mother. So days are long, you know, that takes a lot out of you and coming towards this sort of time of year, the end of the academic year as well. Mm-hmm. So um can you just kind of, you know, just talk us through a little bit about what it is that you do? I mean, you're obviously you you're a further educational teacher, yes. um, for sort of hair beauty and um makeup, and obviously you're a model. How did you kind of come into that? kind of career path and do you think that what you do really lends itself to the fact that you you're autistic does it kind of the sort of the more creative visual kind of field
1: mm, absolutely so I've always wanted to be a makeup artist always um as a child I would always sort of design dresses and do um drawings of uh you know lovely hairstyles and and makeup, and I would sort of play with my mum's makeup all the time, uh, rather than do imagin- imaginatory play, um, which is something that my daughter does as well, which is actually a trace of autism sometimes, where you sort of uh, don't necessarily play with something but you would create instead, um, so I would do that, and, I, and I've always wanted to do it. And so um, I, I did a, a college course, a hair and beauty course, a standard one, and then I did um, a level three in theatrical makeup. And then I went on to do a degree in uh, theatrical makeup and hair for theatre and also wig making and special effects. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, it was the best course ever. Um, and in uh, the beginning of third year, I got pregnant with Talia. Um, and so I... I was sort of working on the side doing some freelance makeup, you know, I was uh, traveling and things like that, doing all sorts, Um, not necessarily getting paid, because when you sort of start out in the industry, it can can be difficult to get paid when you're first starting out if you don't have the connections, which is sort of like the downside of the industry, which I found quite tough to do. Um, And so when I sort of got pregnant with her, I sort of had to reevaluate what I could do in that respect um and I think I sort of found um a, a way which I could sort of be around Talia um and not be too far away and and sort of make sure that I could work within nursery hours which was teaching and so I did a teacher training course uh when I started when uh, Talia was 12 months old and then um Eight weeks into the course i got pregnant with asha and so i um <laughs> i uh, was pregnant throughout the uh, duration of of that year as well um and then i took a break halfway through and then i i went back when ash was 10 months old finished the the teacher training and then a job came up in the place i was studying um for a hair and makeup teacher And I went for it with with no experience of teaching other than my sort of year and a half of teacher training. Um, And it was only, it was minimal hours. It was less than part-time. And I'd actually gone for sort of other support roles in um, special education colleges and things like that as well, which was full-time. And I was hell-bent on going on full-time because I I needed to make an income for my family. Um, But um, I think it was my family that kind of... um, sort of let me let me know that actually sort of the teaching roles probably better than you know other other sort of support roles um, even though it was a, a very low hourly rate sort of thing um, and yeah so I went for the makeup job I got it um, yeah crazy that I got it because I didn't think I did <laughs> and then, um, through, through the years, I've upped my contract. So I was starting off part-time and then now I'm actually full-time. Um, and I teach a wide range of courses, ranging from sort of entry three, level one, level two and level three. So I teach sort of, you know, hair-based uh, courses, beauty-based courses, hair and beauty combined courses, makeup courses as well, um, <clears throat> which I have really thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and I think me going into a teaching role Um, really sort of hones in on my strengths in terms of I love to be organised. I love to follow schedules. I love timings. I love spreadsheets. I love pie charts. Um, I love the structure of my lessons. And actually, I'm able to inject my creativity through my makeup, through my hairdressing skills, um, and through my artistic skills um, into my lessons as well. And I I just love it, I really do. Um, And I think uh, for anybody who is creative, um, artistic, and, and who sort of loves structure, I think it is a really good career path to go down because, you know, I've worked in retail, I've worked in catering before, and it's been so overwhelming and I've hated every minute of it. Um, and you know, with makeup artistry being freelance, it was just too difficult with, with young babies, absolutely awful. And, um, I think in that respect, I, I found my perfect job really. Um, because, you know, even though sometimes it can be overwhelming with sort of behavioral management of students um, and things like that, um, you know, you're following a structure and it's very easy to sort of plan out your day. And I think in a sort of different job setting, um, you know, such as catering or or sort of retail, it, you, you never know what's happening. And, and it's it can be very chaotic. And that is my idea of hell. Um, and yeah, I think it has allowed me to sort of hone in on my creativity and, and be really strong on that and, and actually thrive in that in that environment. So yeah, I'm absolutely, you know, happy with with my job and really, really excited by it. Um and I think the way that I got into modeling gave me a lot more confidence as well um, because I was doing sort of makeup for um, photo shoots and editorial stuff and runway things Um, and it was through that that you know the photographers I was working with actually suggested that I might be good at modeling and I was like oh this is weird because I've been bullied for so long and people used to call me ugly and fat and you know said I was no good that I had such low self-esteem that I would never have thought that I would be good at modeling that I would even enter the realm of that because being in the spot like that that when you have such low self-esteem can be overwhelming but actually um, you know the first shoot I ever did um, when I was 19 um, it was so empowering and I didn't even think it was me I thought oh my goodness is that, that can't be me that's crazy you know because I'd never felt any self-worth at all um throughout the entirety of my life and suddenly I looked at myself and actually thought I actually look all right you know I don't look too bad and then it was through that photo shoot that um throughout the years sort of on and off I've sort of done more um modeling stints and and I sort of didn't do it much when the babies were young and then um, I sort of got more into it over the past three years. And I've worked with so many amazing people that have really uplifted me and really boosted my self-esteem, including a brother. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just been amazing. And I have felt so much confidence um, and such happiness from what I do. And I've met such amazing creative people throughout my journey um, that it has given me the confidence to go further with it and to really um, sort of focus on on the things that I love to do and not feel so uh, self-conscious and so worried about what people think of me as I used to do, you know. So I'm, I'm so happy with where I'm at.
0: It just honestly and i'm listening to you and i'm just i'm just envious i'm like my god i mean you know there's so many people in the world aren't there that couldn't sit there and talk so passionately and with such kind of um like joy about their job and i think to find something that you are obviously exceptionally good at and that pays you so you can pay mm. your bills and you know is just is absolutely fantastic and i love the fact as well that it's giving you back something that should never have been taken away. You know, the fact that you're saying that you never felt any self-worth throughout your whole life. Mm. It's actually really interesting, Anna, that you talk about um, how empowering it was for you when you were working with like the photographers and in that field and being surrounded by people that are just genuinely nice and, and have that kind of energy about them. Because um, one thing I know that Olivia struggles with immensely is her self-esteem. And she often puts that into the hands of other people, mm. and dependent on how other people respond to her. So if they respond positively to her, if they smile at her, if they talk to her, if they include her, she feels probably like on top of the world. Mm. If they don't look at her or smile at her when they when she thinks they should, her self esteem and confidence just hits rock bottom. Is that something that you relate to at all? Do you think that's quite common in autistic oh,
1: absolutely I think a lot of autistic girls um outwardly uh seem like they're attention seeking or something um and I've been called an attention seeker before um or you know somebody who's full of themselves when in actual fact I just want to do things to make people um like me or to make people um warm to me and and you sort of I don't know it's just it's really difficult to be honest I think because you don't want to make it seem like you're that kind of person but it, it kind of does when when you're just searching to be accepted mm. and I think definitely if if I had sort of made myself up and dressed all nicely and I walked into a room and no one said anything mm. uh uh to, to sort of validate me because of my self esteem being so low, I would then go home and feel really, really sort of low, um, and and think, what the hell is wrong with me? Because I made all this effort so that people would look at me and and sort of boost my self esteem. Because I was feeling so low, I needed somebody to validate me, um, and that's sad that actually I needed somebody to, somebody other than myself to validate me and to to boost my self worth. But you know, it's. It's really, it's really hor- horrendous when, when you're expecting somebody to, to, to sort of warm to you or, or, or talk to you and then they don't and then you feel so, so bad. So I completely do resonate with, with how your daughter feels as well. Um, and I think that definitely is a thing for autistic people because they want to be accepted. We, we do mm-hmm. want to be accepted all the time. And, and it's so apparent that we're not because we're so hyper aware that, mm-hmm. you know, we are different. but we don't want to be different we want to be accepted you know so I definitely do think it's a thing yeah
0: for sure and it's something that obviously as parents it's just it can be so challenging to to try and um to support with um and like you know yeah this whole the whole teenage years just bring a a wealth of um emotions I think for everybody everybody concerned um What's also really um, interesting to hear about is that your daughter is now getting assessed for autism is that correct?
1: Yes yeah, she is and um, we're currently on stage two of the process. Uh-huh. We, we've sort of had it you know unofficially confirmed but they do have to still go through the process of of going through the panel. Um, mm-hmm. so we've had uh, stage one uh, where we sort of present the evidence to the psychologist who's dealing with our case and then the uh the second stage is the more lengthy one in terms of waiting so we had to wait uh five months for the first stage and then we're now sort of giving it a frame of sort of 15 plus months to wait for the second one. So with the second one, um, the evidence has to go to a panel um, who then decide whether or not that the second stage of the assessment is something that they're going to pursue. And then obviously um, the second assessment is the one that you have to wait the most time for. Um, It can be sort of 15 months to two and a half years. Even sometimes I've heard of lots of different timeframes from parents um, with waiting times, anyway, um, so that can be very, very difficult. Um, just that waiting period of knowing that your child is autistic, but you can't, you can't sort of prove it until you know you have the sort of official documentation and the official diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a real hard time period for parents, and you often feel like maybe you you are projecting it onto your 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 child or something like that or maybe you're going mad maybe they don't have autism or maybe it's just you mm-hmm. and and people to think that I'm projecting my autism onto my onto my child when I'm you know it's 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 a thing that I've thought for a long time with Talia um I mean you know even before I was diagnosed I I noticed things that weren't typical and I think I just chalked it down to um, you know the terrible twos and things like that um, I remember when I first noticed it um, she was two and she was having what I thought were tantrums when in actual fact they were meltdowns because I now know the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown A tantrum is you know typically when a child doesn't get what they want whereas a meltdown is you know something that they can't cope with or something if they feel like they haven't done right or you know they it's not in their plan and they'll have a meltdown and um you know she was having frequent meltdowns and I talked to the terrible twos um but she was having meltdowns so often that it was literally every 10 minutes Mm -hmm. throughout the day and I was thinking this can't be normal I remember sort of trawling through um you know parenting forums online being like is this normal um what's going on and you know all of the responses were yeah it's a terrible twos you just have to get on with it it'll pass um and then the threes hit the three and ages and then the meltdowns sort of intensified and um you know the particularness about sort of certain textures of food and um what she'd play with and how she would do things um, and even then I didn't really clock that it was autism and then um, she she started school and you know it was all sort of going well um, also I thought when we got to sort of state mm, no yeah yeah year two we got to year two and then we suddenly had this report back from the, the teacher with uh below average below average below average Um, for everything and Talia tries you know her best to the best of her ability but you know she needs support with this this and this and I'm thinking in my head why hasn't this been picked up before what you know where where has this come from I didn't understand and then um, I sort of thought back to the nursery reports you know when she was at nursery and and sort of backtracking a bit um you know thinking about who she played with and I remember this sort of comment from a, you know a, a member of the nursery staff saying you know Talia plays alongside with children not with them um Talia has taken a shine to this particular uh, child at the nursery and she doesn't play with anybody else this child is non-verbal and being assessed for autism um and so you know it was it was the fact that we sort of realized that she was behind academically um that everything sort of started making sense to me a little bit and then i was diagnosed when she was five and then i learned a lot more about it and realized that my daughter was exactly the same as me exactly the same and the meltdowns um her sort of particularness um the way that she used to line up her toys and she still does now the way that she doesn't uh play in sort of an imaginatory way. Um, She um, sort of orders things in color. Um, She has sort of a funny um, idea about texture. She doesn't like certain textures, doesn't like certain noises. And it progressively got worse from the age of five in terms of um, her meltdowns as well. Um, She would really, really melt down, but you know, in school, lo and behold, she she seemed like she was doing okay socially she seemed like she was getting on you know all right i mean yeah she academically she was behind but sort of her presence in the classroom you know she was shy and reserved she just sort of progged along and then it was then i thought i'm gonna start to pursue this and see what the teachers think um, and so uh, by sort of the beginning of year three, I approached her teacher and said, you know, um, her behaviour at home is not like at school. Um, she doesn't sleep barely, uh, or she, you know, it takes her a long time to sleep as it did me when I was a child. Um, you know, she doesn't play in the way that other children play she she will play alongside children not with them um, she won't approach her friends first she won't talk to her friends first um, you know she has trouble with noises and, and you know certain situations you know out in a busy street she really likes being wrapped up tightly uh, she likes small spaces um, you know even we had a um, sort of big amazon delivery of like a bit of furniture or whatever and this this big cardboard box she made it into a home and we had it sitting in the living room for a month we were not allowed to get rid of it and she would just spend all of her time in there um and know, there was all these things that um you know she was melting down over you know even to the extent where every week when she got homework I was dreading it because I knew that she couldn't understand the homework she you know she's eight but she can't read in her own head um she has a lot of difficulty with comprehension she cannot describe what feelings are you know she said to her what does happy look like or what does happy feel like she she couldn't really tell you you know she would you know she often copies other people as well um, and she gets by in that respect Um, and so I pushed for uh, an assessment to be done at school Um, and so she had a dyslexia assessment and she was sort of perhaps borderline, but very mild. Um, So, you know, I asked for sort of further investigation and the um, person that assessed her actually found that she was using avoidance techniques, she was copying other children's work to get by and to mask to make it appear like she was getting on okay at school and in actual fact she wasn't Um, and so you know her her teacher was so so supportive um the most supportive teacher I have ever come across and I was so so thankful to her for supporting sort of my lead on this because I was so scared that people would reject my sort of initial thoughts surrounding her Possibly having autism, as they did with me when I sort of approached my own diagnosis and my own journey for diagnosis, um, and yeah, I was terrified. But you know, her, her teacher was amazing, and you know, we referred um, Talia through her GP, and then we got onto you know the the, the first stage, and um, you know, the evidence was overwhelming. I think, and looking back to when Talia was a baby. Talia was very small at birth. Talia um, didn't breathe straight away. We had a traumatic birth and she was a very low birth weight for being full term. She was four pounds 13 at full term. Um, and like with me, I had a very traumatic birth and I, I um, had to be given oxygen. I was basically starved of oxygen as Talia was at birth. And, and um, I was told by a psychologist that this you know, could be a sort of minor indicator of potential problems in the future um, and so you know and I remember um you know through my own research that in looking back at videos from her as a baby she would um she was very sort of intrepid very fearless and she would sort of try and get out of her baby bouncer when she was six months old and she would crawl up to a wall and just talk to the wall and bash on the wall and um, she would barely respond to her name being called and I'd have to go up to her and really look her in the eye and sort of touch her on the shoulder and say Talia you know even as a sort of um toddler she wouldn't respond to me and to this day if she's engrossed in something if she's really really sort of interested in an, in an activity she cannot hear you you know you'll go up to her and and say Talia it's dinner time and she she won't hear you you know she's she's very very hyper focused on things that she's interested in she has special interests you know there's it, all sort of an accumulation you know and e- even looking back to when she was a baby she used to flap her hands and and do these sort of like funny dances and just walking around in circles non-stop and even um you know back then I didn't know they were traits but they are traits you know and so it's all sort of coming together and connecting the dots and actually realizing that oh yeah my daughter is exactly the same as me I mean (laughs) (laughs) we we um are so similar that we often rub each other up the wrong way in actual fact
0: (laughs) there is always that that um yeah there's always that um Fear, not fear, um, possibility that yeah. when you're two alike, you're
1: gonna, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's actually quite extraordinary. Um, and yeah, I mean, in a way I'm, I'm very glad that my diagnosis was able to ensure that I came to the conclusion that actually my daughter was possibly like me. And I think if I hadn't have been diagnosed, um, i wouldn't have realized i would not have known um because i would have still been wondering what was going on with me you know i wouldn't have had that confidence in my approach to her possible diagnosis and through my sort of um newfound knowledge i've learned a lot of ways to support her Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of um encourage her strengths and her self-esteem because she is really really aware of of where she struggles. I mean, you know, even with homework and drawing a picture, even if she draws a line wrong, she will scream and melt down. And she loves drawing. It's her favorite thing to do, but if she gets it wrong, you know, she she does have a meltdown and I, and I and I dread that, but I push through it because I know that it's something that she loves to do, but she just gets frustrated, um, you know. So I'm, I'm glad that I know as much as I know now so that I can support her as best I can, you know, so. Absolutely, because you're, you are in the prime position
0: because she is, it's like history repeating itself in a way, uh, being able to rewrite history. Yeah. Um, through through Talia because I know that um, my son Adam is, is autistic and he presents very very differently to Olivia but he's very very similar to my brother right. and I know that Mark has commented a couple of times that he's really intrigued to see how Adam's life journey through school and through adolescent and through adulthood progresses because Adam is in receipt of the knowledge that he's autistic and that he's at a school that is catered for his needs and things like that whereas obviously Mark being diagnosed as an adult so like yourself didn't have that yeah yeah he's absolutely. going to be so intriguing as he's because he's like a bit of a mini me you know Adam and Mark how he he goes through and is that is that how you feel about obviously you know with with Talia how
1: absolutely, absolutely. I think uh you know as I said before I think society is a lot more accepting and a lot more lo- knowledgeable about autism and mm. um, I, um, I think you know getting that aut- autistic diagnosis you know when we do get it um, is going to be so helpful for her to actually understand herself and and sort of say okay well this is why I feel like this because at the moment you know if I you know, after a meltdown um, I say you know well why, why, why do you think you sort of acted in that way? You know, why, why did you, why did you, but uh, you feeling so upset? And she would just, you know, well. Like oh, I don't know, mommy, and she really honestly doesn't know. And mm-hmm. I think sort of having that diagnosis and that understanding about, okay, well, this, you know, I'm, I'm displaying this behavior because I'm overwhelmed because I'm autistic, you know, and I think. A lot of people in, in society think that, um, you know, people use autism as an excuse when an actual fact is absolutely not. It's, it's, you know, it's a real thing and it's a real struggle for people as well, you know. Um, and it's almost as if, you know, like when people say, oh, um, you know, so-and-so is not autistic, they just have a superpower. No, no, it's, you know, autism is a thing. It's not, it's not a superpower by any means, you know, we're not all rain man and that you're not all super intelligent we do struggle with things and that needs to be recognized um, and understood a lot more Um, I mean even when when I'm working and I'm, I'm teaching if um you know, one one of my new students is neurodivergent. I will disclose to them that I'm also neurodivergent and that I understand what they're going through. You know, if they're really sort of struggling with certain aspects of, of the course that I teach, I'll sort of sit them down and say, look, this is the strategies that I found helpful. I'm, you know, I'm I can understand, you know, your your struggles to a certain degree because I, I you know, I have I have similar things that I've been through in my life. You know, and I think with that understanding and that promotion of of normalizing autism um, and not sort of creating even more of a stigma behind it I think that is the most progressive way forward and I think the more accepting society is the more accepting um, autistic people will be of, of their diagnosis and and strive to better understand themselves and the world around them um, so yeah it's it's yeah I'm, I'm so happy that that I'm able to sort of create an environment where Talia feels comfortable and and accepted for who she is so
0: absolutely and I think that is just you know that's the perfect roundup to our chat really Anna Mm -hmm. in the fact that you've actually really hit on the nail on the head as well is that we don't just want society to be more accepting of neurodivergent people but we want neurodivergent people to be more accepting of themselves and to not feel like it's something they can't engage with because of the stigma that comes with it and the judgment that comes with it. Um, that's when we know that we've really truly broken down those sort of barriers and, and yeah, able mm. to, to overcome um people's fear of just you know, I want I would love for my children to grow up in a world where if they do so wish they can walk into a room and say I'm autistic and it not have a negative effect or that they're ashamed of it or it's just something that is absolutely naturally embraced and, and accepted that's that's what we all strive for isn't it <laughs> so thank you so much Anna I cannot thank you enough for your time today to, to talk so openly and so you know honestly about your journey Um, yourself and obviously sharing information as well about you know being a mum and going through the assessment process as a parent with your with your daughter um thank you so so much
1: been an absolute pleasure Claire thank you ever so much oh absolutely honestly it's been
0: wonderful talking to you
1: (laughs) thank you thank
0: you so thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm sure it goes without saying that that episode was just so rich in wonderful content. And I know for, for sure, as a, as a mother and as a member of society, that I've taken away so much from that chat with Anna. So thank you so much to her. And thank you for listening. If you are wanting to find out more information about Waking Up to Autism, then do pop over to our website, which is wakinguptoautism.com. And if you are listening as a parent or carer of an autistic child, then we do have the Waking Up to Autism Hub, which recently and is a support service um, for you if you wish to engage with. Again details are on the website